Well, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we'll be concentrating our attention mainly on verse 24 and 25. Christ our Savior being the theme of this passage. As you remember from our study last week, as we started in verse uh, 18, we know that Peter is now exhorting the servants, those who were slaves who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, and so they're members of the church, how they should respond when they suffer unjustly. And he exhorted them to look to Jesus Christ at His example of one who certainly suffered unjustly, and yet He did so without returning evil for evil, without returning insult for insult, but He kept entrusting Himself into the hands of God. And so we uh, read verses 13 down through verse 23 last week as he's exhorting these slaves to imitate Christ and to follow his example because of how he suffered unjustly, therefore imitate him when you suffer unjustly. That finds favor with God. So we're now going to pick it up in verse 24. And Peter now is going to give them another reason why they should imitate Christ in this regard because of what Christ did to save them when He died on the cross. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse... I'll start in verse 21, just to remind you of the context, and read down through verse 25. So the Word of God says in verse 21, "...for ye have been called for this purpose." Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously." And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, or literally on the tree, so that, he might die, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls." And may God bless the reading of His Word. As we begin to look at verse 24 and 25 and see this incredible description of how Christ is our Savior, I wanted to uh, just kind of review briefly some of the different theories of the atonement. Uh, We certainly see Peter emphasizing that when Jesus died on the cross, in one sense, it is our example that we are to imitate, particularly when we suffer unjustly like Christ suffered unjustly. So if Christ is the sinless and holy Son of God, who had no sin of His own, but He suffered unjustly, 
then don't be surprised if you and I suffer unjustly as well. He had no sin and He suffered unjustly. We have sin and we also will suffer unjustly. So the slave is not greater than the master. If they treated the master that way, they will treat his servants and slaves that way as well. And we should not be surprised at that. It's just that whenever we suffer unjustly, as Peter exhorts these slaves, we need to respond the way Christ responded. Not returning evil for evil, insult for insult, but rather entrusting ourselves into the hands of God who judges righteously. We're to imitate His example, in other words. Knowing that when we do suffer unjustly, not only are we to imitate Christ's example, but to know that He can understand what you're going through. He can sympathize. Because He has endured similar, much greater unjust suffering. So He understands. He can strengthen us and give us grace to persevere as we are gradually conformed to His image when we have to bear the cross before we wear the crown and being made more like the very image of Jesus Christ. But there is a sense in which the death of Christ for believers is an example to us. Now, it's far more than that. But Peter is emphasizing to these slaves that they are to imitate the example of Christ and how He suffered unjustly. There's a second theory called the ransom theory. And this is just kind of a little bit of background before we get into verse 24. The ransom theory, some of the early church fathers taught that Christ had to pay a ransom to Satan to release us from the debt we inherited from Adam's sin. Now that's totally false. Some of them held that totally wrong. Christ did pay a ransom to God the Father, sometimes called a redemption price to free us from slavery of sin. So in one sense, this is an appropriate understanding uh, Jesus said that He came not to, be, not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. So depending upon how you define it, the ransom theory would be uh, helpful. It would be biblical if you understand He's paying it to God, not to Satan. Others have come up with, this, with a moral influence theory, which basically says that when Christ died on the cross, all He did was to demonstrate God's love to stir us up to be more loving ourselves. He didn't die to save anybody. He just died so that His example of love could stir us up to be more loving. So it's the moral influence theory. Now, in a sense, this is partially true. Jesus did say in John 13, verse 34, to His disciples, Love one another even as I have loved you. So we certainly see Christ's love on the cross and there is a sense in which that can motivate us to love other people. But again, this theory is very, very inadequate. There's far more to Christ's death on the cross than that. Others have suggested a governmental theory of Christ's death on the cross. And this view says that Christ didn't actually die to take away the punishment that we deserve for our sin. Basically, Christ was just showing God's public displeasure against sin generally. 
Christ didn't actually die for us to, to suffer for our sins. He just died to show that in general, God doesn't like sin. He hates sin. God is a just governor and judge of the universe. His rights to that were negatively impacted by our sin. So Christ came to die to merely show us that sin deserves to be judged. But He doesn't actually die for it for sinners in particular. It's a very generalized view of the atonement. And that is false as stated as well. The best view is what we refer to as the penal substitutionary view. And that's what Peter is going to teach us in verse 24. Penal substitutionary view of the atonement. Substitutionary means that Christ died in our place. And penal comes from the word penalty. So Christ died as our substitute, bearing the penalty that we deserve for our sins. So it's a penal substitutionary atonement. And that captures some of the glory of the cross. And again, that's what Peter is going to be emphasizing in verse 24. Let me also briefly touch upon two other theological words uh, that uh, will help you to understand what Jesus did when He died on the cross. And that is the word expiation and the word propitiation. Both happened on the cross when Jesus died. The idea of expiation focuses on our sins. And basically it means that when Christ died on the cross, He accomplished expiation. He removed the penalty due our sins. So expiation means He removes our sin. He removes the guilt, the penalty of our sin. So it's focused on our sin. Christ bore our sins and removed the penalty and the guilt from us. That's expiation. It's a wonderful word. But in addition to that, the Bible in probably uh, four or five different verses refers to Christ's death as a propitiation. So you need to know this word as well. Where expiation focuses on our sin, our sin is removed by Christ's death. Propitiation focuses on God. And God's wrath is removed from us. So, when Christ died and bore our sins, that removed God's wrath because He bore God's wrath for us. So, He took away God's wrath from us because He endured God's wrath for us on the cross. So, expiation removes our sin. Propitiation removes God's wrath. And that's why we rejoice that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Christ has expiated and removed our sin. He has also propitiated and removed God's wrath. There's no condemnation left for the believer. So it's part of the glory of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Now this idea, one of the reasons why I bring this up, because this idea of removing God's wrath stirs up the wrath of a lot of modern theologians. 
They think it's insulting and beneath God to say that God has wrath at all. They teach that God is a loving God. And all he, all he is is basically a God of love. And He has no wrath against anyone. So to talk about removing God's wrath stirs up wrath in many of them. And they say that basically for God to kill His Son for the sins of others is like a cosmic child abuse. He's punishing His Son for the sins of others. God would never do that. So they totally misunderstand the seriousness of our sin and what's needed to actually cure us from our sin. So they totally misunderstand that. Actually, they want to make God into an unjust God because God, based on their view, can just wave His hand and forgive sin. So He totally sets aside any form of justice at all. But if you bring a criminal before a judge and the judge just waves his hand and says, you're free to go, and he lets them off without them being punished, what would we call that judge? An unjust judge. And God would be the same if His justice is not satisfied, if His wrath is not removed. So it's a completely false understanding. The heart of the Gospel is summed up in expiation and propitiation. Because why did Christ suffer on the cross anyway? To remove God's wrath. So that we don't go to hell, which we deserve. To save us from our sins. So it's the very heart and soul of of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, let's now begin to look at verse 24. And... uh, Let's begin to examine uh, the verse, which again says, And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, or on the tree. And there's three things we can say about this verse in understanding the atonement or the death of Jesus Christ. Number one, it involves a personal sacrifice. If you look at verse 24, it says, He Himself bore our sins in His body. He did it. It was a personal sacrifice made by Jesus Christ Himself. And the reason why He did it, because no one else could do it. No one else in all the universe could take away our sins but Jesus Christ. He alone was qualified to do it. No angel can do it. No animal can do it. No other man can do it. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They're disqualified. Nobody can, can take away and be our substitute and bear our sins. They have to carry their own sins. But Jesus Christ was the sinless God-man. He was fully God and fully man without sin. As man, He could take our place and be our substitute because He shares fully our nature. So He can represent us. As God, His sacrifice could take away the infinite penalty that no finite creature could. So He was fully God, fully man, 
which qualifies him to be our Savior. And there is only one of those in all of the universe, and it's Jesus Christ. It's absolutely impossible for any other religion to save people and bring them to heaven because their Savior, their leader, cannot take away our sin. Moses cannot save you. Mary cannot save you. Muhammad cannot save you. Hinduism, Buddhism, New Age, you name it. None of those can save because the only one who can save us must be fully God and fully man. Fully man to represent us. Fully God to take away the infinite wrath of God. So Jesus Christ is the only Savior. And what Peter affirms in verse 24 is that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. And He could do that because He was without sin, as Peter said back in chapter 1, verse 19. He's the Lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And later on in chapter 3, Peter will say of Christ, He died for, the, for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. So He was a sinless man who could take our place on the cross. And He was God because He was able to bear the full penalty of God's wrath upon us. He also did this willingly. He was not forced to do it. Jesus said in John 10, no one has taken it, i.e. His life, away from Me, but I lay it down on My own initiative. And in Isaiah 53, which Peter has a lot in the forefront of his mind, it says He poured out Himself to death. He did it voluntarily. He wasn't forced to do it. So we see number one, a personal sacrifice. He Himself bore our sins. Because no one else could. But He was willing to do that for us. A personal sacrifice. Secondly, we also see the penal substitution aspect of His death in this verse. He bore our sins in His body on the cross. Again, Peter drawing from Isaiah 53 verse 12 said He poured out Himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet He Himself bore the sin of many. Christ bore it. He took it to Himself. Our sins were placed upon Him. This was a part of the symbolic gesture of the priest in the Old Testament. Again, mentioned this last week, that they would put their hands on the head of that goat or that animal, confess over the sins, and the sins would be transferred from the people to that animal symbolically. Well, that actually happened with Jesus Christ. The Father laid all of our sins upon Christ. Not symbolically, actually laid our sins upon Him. And the weight of our sins is too great for us to bear. Because those who never turn to Christ, they must bear their own sin, which will require an everlasting punishment for them. But our sins are too heavy for us. But God laid them all upon Christ. 
Our sins are like a heavy millstone hung around our necks that would drown us in the very depths of the lake of fire. We could not bear that. There would be no end to trying to bear those sins. But God laid them all upon Christ. The full weight of every one of our sins. The entire weight of it. So that Christ drank the very drops of the cup of God's wrath to the very bottom. He bore the full curse of the law for us. And without Christ, if you do not have Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you will have to bear your sins yourself and stand before Almighty God and give an account. And His justice will punish you for your sins. Christ is the only Savior. And He welcomes, He invites you, He commands you to come to Him to receive the free gift of everlasting life. Come, believe upon Him, and He will save you too. Notice it also says that He bore our sins. And here the hour referred, Peter is thinking of the sins of believers. He's talking to the church. He's writing to the church. And he says that Christ bore our sins. And again, Peter is getting this from Isaiah 53. Where in verse 6 it says, The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. The us all refers to the covenant believing community within Israel. In verse 11 He says, my servant will justify the many, referring to that limited covenant uh, chosen people of God, as he will bear their iniquities. Verse 12, he himself bore the sin of many. So he bore our sins. And isn't that a joyful thought? Christ bore your sins when he died on the cross as a believer. The Lord has caused again our sins to be placed and fall on our Savior so that everything and anything that would send us to hell was laid on Christ. Everything and anything that would incur the wrath of God upon you was laid on Christ. Everything and anything that would cause God to react to you in anger has been laid upon Christ. All of our sins were laid upon Him. This is the great doctrine of the substitution where Christ took our sins, died in our place. And again, this is something that Peter is drawing heavily from Isaiah 53. And notice also it goes on to say that He bore our sins in His body on the tree. You see, sin not only cursed our soul, it cursed our body. So Jesus had to, buy, to, to die in body and, his, and, and, and spirit, if you will, to bear the full penalty of the curse of sin. The soul lives forever, but His, his soul was punished as His body died for our sins. So His body had to suffer as well as His soul. And notice also that Peter emphasizes that His body was on the tree. Or some of your Bibles may translate it as on the cross. 
The word is actually a tree. And I think what Peter has in mind is Deuteronomy 21, where it says, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. To hang on a tree, suffering the penalty of death as a criminal, you're cursed. You're cursed. And Peter emphasizes that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, when He died on the tree, He was bearing not a curse for Himself, but our curse that we deserved because of our sin. Paul in Galatians 3 connects these dots when he says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Quoting from Deuteronomy 21-23. Now what's so incredible about this is that death on a tree again was a shameful curse death for a criminal. And to the Jews, if they could crucify Jesus, then they would clearly disqualify Him from being the Messiah. Because in their minds, obviously the Messiah ain't going to be cursed of God if He's going to be our Messiah. But little did they understand that in the prophecy of Isaiah, it shows the very opposite. Only the one who takes our sin and becomes a curse for us on the tree can be the true Messiah can be our suffering servant who can take away the sins of God's people. Only that person can be the Messiah who is also the suffering servant. So the Jews thinking, okay, we're going to crucify Him, put Him on a tree by the Roman crucifixion, and now show everybody that He's totally disqualified to be the Messiah, and yet it proves that He's the Messiah. And no one else could actually be the Messiah but Jesus Christ. So we have this penal substitution. We have personal sacrifice. And then we also see just as a result of this, a perfect satisfaction. This is what again Isaiah 53 emphasizes. The Father's response to the sacrifice of the Son prophetically. It says in verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And this is one of my favorite verses in all the, of the Old Testament. Because it says that the Father will look upon the anguish the suffering of the Son of God on the cross, and He will see it, and He will be satisfied. In other words, His justice is satisfied. His wrath is satisfied. His anger is satisfied. Because all of that was poured out and borne by Christ for us on the cross. And the Father is satisfied. No more wrath No way. He has expiated their sins. He has propitiated my wrath 
I am totally satisfied that Christ has done it all to save them from their sins. So that at the end of this verse, God can now justify sinners who come to faith in Christ. He can declare them righteous. They're sinners. They deserve God's wrath, but Christ took it. And then sinners who put their faith in Christ, now God declares them to be righteous. The law can scan them from the top of their head to the bottom of their feet. And the holy law of God will render its verdict. I see no sin in them at all. Nothing to judge. Nothing to punish. So God is satisfied because of Christ's atonement. Well, Christ not only died just to save us from our sins, but He also died to change us. And this is what Peter emphasizes in the second part of verse 24. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by His wounds you were healed. So Christ came to die in our place as our substitute, bear the penalty that we deserve, not again just to forgive us of our sins, but to change us. To change you and to change me. So we're not the same person that we were. And he begins by saying the first change is that that we might die to sin. Actually, the better translation, in my opinion, is to say, so that having died to sin, we live to righteousness. This is actually an aorist participle, for those of you who know, and I think the better way, in light of his connection with the verb, is to translate it, having died to sin. So what Peter is saying is that you believers in Jesus Christ who've come to the Lord Jesus for salvation, you've already died to sin because that's what happened in your conversion. When you were saved, we were united with Christ. We were united with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. So we have died to sin. So you can go back and study Romans 6 because I think all of that is kind of embedded within this. But it certainly implies that we're no longer a slave to sin like we once were. Yeah, we still wrestle with sin. We all do. We still struggle with it. But we're not a slave to it. We're not in bondage to it. We don't want to sin like we once loved to sin. That power of sin is broken at our conversion. So we have died to sin. And that's part of the effect Part of the change that Christ produces in those who come to faith in Him. But not only that, we're to live to righteousness. For before, we didn't like righteousness per se. At least not as it's connected with God. We loved our sin. And in fact, Paul says that we were dead to righteousness. Now we're alive to it. We want to live in it. We want to pursue after sanctification without which no man will see the Lord. We want to pursue after sanctification in all areas of our life and we are empowered and enabled to do that because the Holy Spirit lives within us and the life of Christ is within us. 
And that's our power. That's our motivation. That's our drive to want to live for the glory of my Savior. That should motivate us. To live to righteousness. See, these are the two big changes. You're no longer a slave to your sin. Still struggle with it. But you're not a slave to it. And you're to live to righteousness. To live obedient lives for His honor and His glory. Does that characterize us? It should. Those are part of the changes that conversion brings about. And then Peter says at the end of verse 24, for by His wounds you were healed. By His wounds you were healed. And this again is the reason why we have died to sin and can live to righteousness because we've been healed. But notice it's not by our wounds, it's by His wounds. And actually in the Greek, it's a singular. It's by His wound, singular, you're healed. The wound here would refer to a stripe, a bruise, a bloody welt that results from a sharp blow. Now remember, he's speaking to slaves. And they could probably feel some of those on their back at that point. And this is another way that would draw out their love because now they're thinking, you know, Christ and to hurt this and infinitely far more to save me from my sins. But that they would have identified with this word wound. Because if they had a bad master, they were afflicted and inflicted with many wounds. Slaves would sometimes be tied to a post or flogged, and they would. Some of them may have had many scars on their back. Here in this verse, though, what Peter is referring to is not their wounds, but Christ's wound, and he uses a singular because he's probably referring to all of the bodily pain that our Lord endured to save us from our sins. That would include when he was flogged by the Romans. It would include his crucifixion, the nails being driven into his hands and his feet. But it's by his wound you were healed. The healing that's involved here in the context is clearly spiritual. You're healed of your sin, the condemnation of your sin the guilt of your sin, the punishment of your sin, the bondage of your sin. So physical healing is not primarily what Peter has in mind. Ultimately, physical healing will be included, but we don't get that till the resurrection or Christ's second coming when our body is glorified. That's when all the physical healing aspects of it will be given to us. God still heals according to His sovereign plan, but not everybody. But uh, healing will eventually be ours when we're glorified with Him. It's an interesting comment on this by one of the early church fathers or theologians in the 5th century A.D. by the name of Theodoret. When he was referencing this expression that by His wounds you were healed. He said, this is a a very new and strange method of healing where the doctor 
suffers the pain and the cost and the sick receives the healing. Now wouldn't you like to go to a doctor and he takes all of your disease in its entirety. He puts the bill for all of that. But he endures it himself and you get healed. Without any of the pain, any of the cost, any of the suffering, you get healed. That's what Christ did for us. He bore our sin. He endured our pain. And we get the blessing from it. We are the ones that get healed without having to endure the cost. So, praise be to the Lamb. And then finally, Peter mentions in verse 25, For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So again, uh, Peter has in mind Isaiah 53.6 All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. And what Peter is referring to, they're now describing his readers who are believers. Some are free, some are slaves within the body of Christ. And he's saying that before you were saved, you were continually straying like sheep. He really has more in mind their before salvation rebellion against God. You were continually straying like sheep. And that's really what Isaiah is referring to. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way. And Peter is picking up on that and just emphasizing that by nature, sinners are continually straying away from God. And he's describing that as just the condition of fallen man. We don't run to the shepherd. We don't love the shepherd. We run from the shepherd. We don't want to be in His flock. And so we are continually, always, straying like sheep. Going our own way. Not following God's way, but going our own way. Following our own fancies. Living our own life the way we want to live it. Continually straying like sheep. That's the nature of fallen mankind. But he says, again in verse 25, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Now you have returned. They have returned, but not on their own power. Actually, this returned is in the passive voice. They have been returned. But it can be translated as an active as it is here. You have now returned. Which they have returned, but what caused them to return? What caused them to come to the shepherd? To come into his fold? It wasn't anything they contributed. See, sheep by nature are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. You know, even as Christians, we can identify with that. But sheep are continually straying, and once lost, they're helpless to find their way back, and they become easy prey for wolves. In this spiritual parallel, they don't want to come back. They're continually straying, living their own life. They're headed in the wrong direction, away from God. But something arrests them and turns them back to God. And it's God Himself who does that. They return to God by God. 
God is the one who is at work. If you compare Scripture with Scripture, I think this is the idea. Look at how Ezekiel describes it. As he prophesies the coming of the Messiah and his saving ministry to save lost sheep. Look at how Ezekiel describes it. Ezekiel 34 verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. The sheep don't go searching for the shepherd. They're running away from the shepherd. So the shepherd goes and he searches them out. He seeks them out. He's the one on the move. In verse 16, he says, the shepherd says, I will seek the lost. Bring back the scattered. Bind up the broken. Strengthen the sick. It's the shepherd who seeks. It's the shepherd who brings them back. The sheep don't come on their own. Sovereign grace must capture them and bring them into the fold. And that's why Jesus could say in Luke 19 that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Romans chapter 3 makes it very clear. There is none who seeks after God. There is none. So God must do the seeking. God must do the saving. God must bring in the sheep. And if He has brought you into the fold, you have only God to thank because it was His gracious work. Peter says, now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your soul. Christ here is referred to as our Shepherd. The shepherd here is one of the most beautiful and incredible descriptions of Jesus Christ. He's our glorious shepherd who loves us, who feeds us, he protects us, he leads us, he's the good shepherd. In fact, the Bible describes Jesus Christ in the New Testament as the Good Shepherd, the Great Shepherd, and the Chief Shepherd. And as again, Ezekiel describes the coming Messianic ministry of Jesus Christ as our Shepherd. It quotes Him as saying, in effect, I will feed My flock, I will lead them to rest. And remember those words of Jesus If anyone is weary, let them come to me for rest. And He gives them rest in in Him. So Christ is our shepherd. And that's why Psalm 23 is one of our favorite psalms. That the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. This is what we can say of Christ. He's my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. How wonderful to know that we have a shepherd who loves us and and leads us and feeds us and cares for us and nothing will snatch us out of His hands. But He's also our guardian. The word shepherd actually is the word for pastor. 
is part of the function of elders within the church who are to shepherd the flock of God. So we are the the elders are the under shepherds. Christ is the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. But it's interesting that the word guardian is also used of elders in the New Testament. This is the word for overseer. As elders are described as being overseers. That is, they keep a watchful eye on the flock for danger, for problems, for issues. And now, the the supreme, glorious, exalted, greatest guardian or overseer of all is Jesus Christ. He keeps watch over you every day, every moment. His eye is on you. He guides us. He directs us. He protects us. He's the guardian of all of His sheep. He guards their souls and He has promised to preserve us to the end. He prays for us constantly. And again, nothing can snatch us out of His hand. Nothing can separate us from His love. He is our guardian. He will guard you until you safely arrive in glory with Him. So Peter is reminding these slaves, look, when you suffer unjustly, remember that Christ suffered unjustly too. And learn from Him how to endure unjust treatment. Respond the way He responded. Endure it patiently. Because that finds favor with God. But He's far more than just your example. He tells them that He is our expiation, our propitiation. He's our Savior. He's our Shepherd. He's our Guardian. He has offered Himself as our substitute to take away our penalty. This is who He is. This is what we glory in. And it's our great blessing as we turn to the Lord's table. Now to take all these truths about Christ and just meditate upon them in your mind and then respond to these truths of what Christ has done for you. And now to respond to Him in praise and thanksgiving for all that He has done to save His people from their sins. So as we turn to the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that Christ has given us this to be a blessing to our soul. To give us an opportunity to focus upon the cross. To focus upon what He endured. What He suffered for us to save us from our sins. And we are to respond in praise and worship and adoration for all that He has done for us. Again, as you have been reminded, if there's any sin you need to confess or repent of, you should do that before you partake so that you can partake in a way to fully milk the joy that should come from partaking in the Lord's Supper. To be reminded of His love, His grace, His mercy. So remove the sin, focus on Christ, and praise Him for all that He has done to save us. Well, before I break the bread and before we pass it, let's bow our heads and give thanks for the bread.
Our Father in Heaven, we want to thank You and praise You and bless You and adore You for loving us so much that You sent Your only begotten Son to die upon the tree as our substitute, bearing our penalty, enduring the full measure and scope of the wrath of God so that Your justice is satisfied and that we can rejoice that we are justified by the grace of God. Lord, if there's any here this morning who have never come to faith in Christ, maybe it's a child, maybe it's an adult, Lord, show them their sin. Show them that there is no other Savior than Jesus Christ. And O oh Lord, draw them to the Savior that they might be saved forever. And for us who know You, Lord, this supper is for believers. And we pray that we would truly focus and worship You. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.